You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thanks for joining us today. Uh, my name is Catherine Siamsia. I'm an Associate Professor of History here at UW-Madison. And it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Anat Plocker. Dr. Plocker teaches at the School of General Studies at Stockton University in New Jersey, where she specializes in the history of modern Europe. Before that, she held postdoctoral fellowships at both Yale University and the University of Haifa in Israel. Dr. Plocker gained her PhD from Stanford University, which is where I first met her. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have the same um, advisor, Norman Neymark, and Annette not only became an intellectual interlocutor for me, but also a wonderful friend. Her first book, The Expulsion of Jews from Communist Poland, Memory Wars and Homeland Anxieties, has been published very recently by Indiana University Press. I got my copy just over a week ago, so it really is hot off the presses. This is truly a groundbreaking book in which Dr. Plocker traces the origins, course, and legacies of the anti-Zionist campaign in Poland in 1968, when communist leaders and lower-level officials mobilized anti-Semitism to advance their political agendas. And we're obviously going to hear a lot more about the book um, today in her talk, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I just want to highlight two things that I really admire about this book. The first is just how skillfully Dr. Plocker mines the archives. She shows how the communist uh, state functioned on the inside. Indeed, she reveals in an almost forensic way who was talking to whom, what they were saying, and who held power at any given moment. It really is a model of how to do painstaking archival research. The second thing that strikes me is that this is a very timely book, one whose revelations transcend the particular case study of 1968 in Poland. That's to say it is also a reflection on the broader processes and mechanisms of political and societal exclusion. In particular, she shows how state officials can mobilize history, as well as tap into fears about certain citizens being disloyal in order to supposedly justify policies and acts of exclusion or even expulsion. She's now embarked on a new project that focuses on the politics of food production, distribution and consumption in communist and post-communist Poland and I know she's just as excited as we all are to get back into the archives. Her talk today, however, will focus on her most recently published book, The Expulsion of Jews from Communist Poland, Memory Wars and Homeland Anxieties. So thank you, Annette, for coming to Madison on this very <laughs> chilly and windy day. Um, and I'll ask everybody to join me in welcoming Dr. Plucker to Madison. Uh, first of all, thank you, Catherine, for the wonderful introduction and thank you for the invitation. And thank you, um, David, as well, so much. And Krika for the organization. Thank you. Um, everyone, despite the wind, it's been, <laughs> it's been a nice visit so, so far. And thank you all for coming today um, to my talk, uh, the very first book talk I'm giving um, about this project. So I'm kind of excited. Um, to be talking about, as Catherine said, it's really hot off the presses, just published um, 
in, in March. Um, so I'm going to start by talking exactly about the archives. And you know, this was several, several years ago when I was in the archives, sitting in the Institute of National Memory in Warsaw, this big building, looking at the security police files from 1968. When I came across a very familiar face in, in one of the photographs, this was my mother, age 22. The photo was taken one night late in March 1968, when my mother was out with one of her friends and fellow students, Leon Spard. Um, this was the night that Leon was arrested for his involvement with student dissident activities. My mother was not arrested, she was not part of the movement. She was only on the periphery of it. But her friend Leon was jailed for a few months. And then he was freed under the condition that he and his family leave Poland forever. My own family was also forced to leave Poland in 1968. My mother, a student at Warsaw University, my grandparents, my teenage uncle all immigrated to Israel in 1968. This was actually after the family of my father had immigrated to Pol from Poland in 1957. So my parents, despite being both of them Polish Jews, met in Israel. My maternal grandparents featured here, uh, Yosef and Mania Godkorn, were pre-war communists. According to family myth, uh, they met in a party function in interwar Poland. Interestingly, they shared the same last name and they were also second cousins. <laughs> As communists, and despite enduring extreme hardship in a Soviet uh, kulkhoz during the war, they escaped to the Soviet Union during the war, so despite the hardship of the Soviet kulkhoz in Uzbekistan, they came back to Poland after the war in 1946. My grandfather, Józef Goldkorn, worked for the Teskeshet, the Jewish Cultural Association of Jews in Poland. He had risen to prominence in the Upper Silesian section of the Teskeshet and became head of the local branch, in fact. When they moved to Katowice then, Katowice, this is in Upper Silesia, in 1946, the authorities there were busy expelling, actually, the ethnic Germans who lived there. Part of the mass deportation of Germans out of the newly acquired Western territory. Anti-Jewish violence also swept Poland then in 46-47. The state aimed to homogenize Poland in these new borders. So they were getting rid of the Germans, and they were getting rid of the Jews. But they stayed. <coughs> 20 years later, they moved to Warsaw, where my grandfather wrote for Volkstimme, the Yiddish language daily. Uh, this was until the state, right, in 68, forced him out of his job and out of his country. My uncle, not featured in this picture, 
uh, published many years later in Italian, later translated into Polish, a literary memoir of his childhood in Poland. It was entitled, A Child in the Snow. And it tells some of our family story. In, in this memoir, he describes my grandparents' deep attachment to communism and to Poland. And he quotes my grandmother, now we are at home, Ushebie, when they came back. And they felt that way, Ushebie, despite the fact, despite these attacks on Jews in Poland. This new Poland, the socialist Poland, was supposed to fulfill their dream of belonging. This was the title of Yanina Bauman's book, published years later. And she felt that she, Yanina, belonged to Jewish culture. She was the daughter of acculturated Polish Jews. Her son-in-law of Yanina Bauman, Leon Sfard, <coughs> saw things differently. I was a Pole and a Jew, both things, not one before the other, but in a world that places ethnic national identity above all other identities, such dreams of belonging have little chance of coming true. And all these people were forced out of Poland, their Poland. 50 years later, in 2018, Michael Spar, Leon's son, said in an interview for a British website, it, my father's involvement in March 1968, undoubtedly had a big impact on me. Our home was very political. I grew up with the principle that you should do the moral thing, even at a cost. Michael is now a well-known Israeli human rights lawyer. He and, his, he and his firm litigated hundreds of cases pertaining to the everyday lives of Palestinians. And he's also the grandson of the Polish poet, Polish-Jewish poet in Yiddish, Dovid Sfard, the film scholar Regina Dreyersfard, on his father's side, on Leon Sfard, and of the author Janina Bauman and the very famous sociologist Zygmunt Bauman on his mother's side. All of these people were forced out of Poland, along with Michael's parents, Anna and Leon Sfard. In a 2009 article for the Israeli daily Haaretz, entitled Back to Nine, Warsaw 1968, Michael wrote, I saw the military prosecutor speaking with pathos about the need to keep him, and he's talking about Mohammed Khatib, one of the Palestinian leaders of the Bilayan protests in, in, in the West Bank, in custody, about his being a security risk just like my father and his friends in Warsaw in 1968, when they organized demonstrations against the regime and for democracy. There too, the authority arrested le the leaders of the protest in an effort to make them disappear. There too, the arrests were made in the pre-dawn hours. There too, there were police officers who made the arrests, secret service agents who carried out, out the interrogations, prosecuted, prosecutors, sorry, who prosecuted, and judges who judged. And there too, each one was a small but essential cog in a huge machine whose purpose 
with the control and oppression of millions. Michael concluded, Warsaw 1968 is not like Berlin in 2009. The conflict is different, the world is different, but there is something similar in all attempts to oppress human beings. In his book, The Wall and the Gate, Michael explained that he has taken up the Palestinian cause because Palestinians in Israel, uh, in the, sorry, Palestinians in the Israeli-occupied territories have no citizenship status. In 1968, his parents and grandparents, and my own family for a short, short period, had no passports and no citizenship. The Polish uh, communist government had issued them one-way travel documents, illegally stripped them of their citizenship. My book, The Expulsion of Jews from Communist Poland, analyzes exactly this process by which state authorities deprive citizens of citizenship. It talks about how cogs in the machine turn a minority into a security threat, how they force people out of their homeland. It traces the story of the triumph of nationalism over citizenship rights, over equality. Unlike Adam Michnik, the famous dissident who said that the March events were a dry pogrom, a story typical and at the same time unique to Jews, I show that the anti-Jewish campaign in 1968 is an integral part of modern, the modern history of Europe, of nationalism. More specifically, it tells the story of how over the span of a year, from the summer of 1968, eh, sorry, from the summer of 1967, the Communist Party in Poland, which was empowered right since uh, the end of World War II, persecuted, alienated Jewish members of the party and drove them out. Key party members that wanted absolute loyalty to the nation and its embodiment in the communism, right, wanted to eliminate completely Jewish presence in the party and in the state. Okay, and the campaign actually starts in June 67, following um, the June 67 war in the Middle East. That's when the party turns against Polish Jews and uh, the communist leader of, com the, sorry, the leader of communist Poland, Gomułka, right, listens to party members who tell him the Jews are conspiring against you. Jews are a, a, a national security threat and he tells Jews to leave. This is before student demonstrations start in March 68. And when they do start, the party responds, right? The students go to the streets in their tens of thousands um, in March 1968, protesting something completely different. They're protesting uh, free speech, they want reform, but the regime responds to this by launching an anti-Jewish campaign, anti-Zionist campaign. They accuse student leadership of serving a Zionist conspiracy aimed at destabilizing the regime and destroying the country. Okay. And this, as I said, continues the allegations that they uh, had already put on Polish Jews after the 67 war when they blamed them of, of siding with Israel against Poland's interests. And so we see a huge anti-Zionist media campaign in March 68 that 
blamed Jews, Polish Jews, for political disorder. We see a massive purge of Jews from state institutions, from party organs. And this lasts into the end of the summer of 68. And in less than a year, the Polish communist regime destroys the reform movement and drives out of Poland 15,000 Jews. And what sets the tone for this reaction to student unrest is a deeply rooted fear of Jewish conspiracy. In the late 1960s, party members, security service officers constructed narratives of fear of Jews. They understood Jewish behavior as a threat to the existence, the very existence of the Polish socialist nation, despite the Jewish minority being so tiny. And I don't see fear here as, as some political tool, some, something cynical politicians use to rally up the troops, but an emotion that stemmed from their identification, party members' identification, with the nation and with their perception of threat to the future of the collective. You know, chief party members, but also rank and file members. State officials came to fear a Jewish threat, personified in Zionist imperialist nationalism. This Zionist enemy was, of course, an internal enemy working from within the party and the state in sort of the classic communist fashion, but it was also an external enemy, right? Working in the name of a state that was, right, completely against Poland in the international arena. And so party members feared the Jews would undermine the regime, would take over the country in the guise of reforming socialism. And they would do so because they support Zionism. And Zionism stresses ethno-national identity. And it was the guiding ideology of a state that allied with Western powers, with Poland's enemies. And, and I don't mean to say here that Zionist and Jew became the same thing. But now what happens is what we would, could call a sliding between signs. Any Jew could be labeled a Zionist at any moment. They, before that, a Polish Jew could be called a communist or a Zionist, all kinds of political affiliations. But now, Jew and Zionist became strongly linked in, in the political discourse. And there were some people who also used them interchangeably, but it was not the same thing. But what was at the heart of the story? At the heart of the battle that this, the communist government waged against the students, the reformist movement, was the memory of World War II. The narration of the history of the war, this was not about reform communism. And the communist party here took a Polish nationalist stance. In 1967-68, as today, the media focused on debates about concentration camps, about the rescue of Jews during the Holocaust. During that period, the Communist Party wanted to make Poland's for Poles, right? A Poland where there would only be one point of view on the past, the national view. National communism both emerged out 
of this official communist narrative of World War II, but it also transformed it. The ethnic turn the Communist Party took in the 1960s, the growing importance of national symbol and Polish ethnic identity, not only influenced the commemoration, shaped the way the war was talked about, but it actually was part of a key element in the identity of Poles as the primary victims of World War II. So they're both born out of this narrative and they create it. And the Communist Party waged this campaign against Zionists in the name of Poles martyred in the war, in the name of their, right, their, their own families, in the name of their own nation in their eyes, of the people who sacrificed their names to save the Jews. And they believed that this history was being forgotten because of a Zionist plot. A Zionist plot to raise awareness of the Holocaust, to erase the memory of their own heroism. They saw publications about the Holocaust, publications in the West, in Israel, as part of a Jewish conspiracy against Poland. They, and in the same way, they saw the student movement as a Jewish Zionist attempt to weaken communism. Everything was part of the same conspiracy against Poland, to make us forget Polish heroism, to weaken communism, to undermine the regime. And today, the Polish government again rejects academic freedoms, again rejects historical complexities, and still safeguards those nationalist narratives of the past. In January 2018, not not right before the pandemic, so we almost forgot. <laughs> a huge international scandal erupted as the Polish parliament passed new legislation regulating the memory of World War II. So it became illegal to publicly state that Poles collaborated with the German occupiers in the persecution and mass murder of Jews. You could get uh, uh, um, a fine or you could get jail time. Uh, and the law excludes and still does academic and artistic context from uh, litigation. The Polish prime minister featured here, who's still the prime minister, Mateusz Morawiecki, defended this law. He said it protects the good name of Poland from slander. Um, he said that the truth about World War II must be safeguarded, just like they did in 68. We know that similar memory laws had been passed in some of Poland's neighbors, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, all in a bid to control the narrative of the war and present uh, the citizens of these countries as victims and rescuers who bravely resisted the Nazi occupation, silencing historical debates on the question of collaboration. Morawiecki held a press conference in this museum, the Ulma Family Museum of Poles Saving Jews During World War II. This is in the small town called Markova. The Olmas were a Jewish family. Um, they hid, a fa they hid um, uh, sorry, they were a Polish family. They hid a Jewish family. They were all found uh, and, of course, killed in March 1944. This museum opened in March 2016 as part of Morawiecki's government efforts as I said, uh, to, to emphasize 
Polish sacrifice, right? Polish uh, victimhood, and, and really stress their role as rescuers. As the museum's website explains, the primary goal of the museum is to show the heroic stance of the Poles who helped the Jews during the German occupation, risking their own lives and the lives of their families. And of course, the, the choice of location here speaks volumes, right? The contemporary Polish government stresses the role of Jews as rescuers, as victims, and it refuses to join the conversation on Polish collaboration, which it considers anti-Polish slander, again, just like their predecessors in 68. But this law, as I said, aroused an international scandal, and they opened negotiations with the Israeli government. And so Morawiecki still tried to defend the law. He said it was just, but they would have to amend it because of pressure from international interests. In return for amending this law, the Israeli prime minister at the time, Benjamin Netanyahu, and Morawiecki um, signed a joint and interestingly, this joint statement accepts the narrative of the, the Polish narrative of the story. The Polish narrative on the murder and rescue of Jews. It highlights Polish saviors and the Polish underground state's role in hiding Jews. And now, and, and now I'm going to cite and reject it, rejects the actions aimed at blaming Poland or the Polish nation as a whole for the atrocities committed by the Nazis and their collaborators of different nations. And it ends with a rejection of anti-Polonism and under-negative national stereotypes. Right? So this um, statement issued in joint with the Israeli government, in fact, fulfills the aspirations of my politicians from 50 years ago, from 1968 those politicians who drove out 15,000 Jews. They also rallied against anti-Polonism. They also wanted to protect the good name of the nation. In general, the whole the rhetoric of peace, the Law and Justice Party, Morawiecki's party, right, and of other right-wing uh, right figures during this entire affair was very similar to the rhetoric the communist government used against the students in March 68. Their language of contemporary Polish nationalism, the focus on the memory of the war is very closely related to the language of their predecessors. These Polish nationalists who, opened, who worked in a communist framework in the 60s and the 70s. The issue of the rescue and especially the righteous among the nation was a central theme of the 67-68 propaganda. In one example, one of the key journalists of the press campaign of 1968 claimed that millions rather than thousands of Poles helped Jews during the Holocaust. Right? And a claim today sounded again that there were that many more Poles rescued Jews than we think. The first secretary, Gomuka, the head of the party, right, claimed that um, Jews who survived in Poland all owed their lives to Poles. In another interesting parallel, in a January 2018 bro uh, broadcast, one right-wing um, radio personality 
called on those who object to the new memory legislation to pursue Israeli citizenship, which was very similar to what Gumunka has said to the Jews in June 67. If you don't like it, you can leave. You can go to Israel. And most importantly is that the period of national communism gave rise to the rescuer narrative. The narrative that is still central to the perception, the Polish perception of the Holocaust. A narrative created in 56, 50, and 68. And this narrative integrates the faith of Polish Jews into the story of Polish heroism in a very particular way. And in, in this period of, of post-Stalinist Poland, we see both uh, Polish and Jewish scholars publishing a lot of works dealing with the rescue of Jews. The activities of Zygota, which was an organization under the umbrella of the home army that engaged in rescuing Jews, become famous. They were not even talked about before, but they become very famous and the regime even embraces them against what they want. It's not that Zygota supported, but the regime uh, incorporated their story. And books, films, newspaper articles, all publicized stories of Poles risking their lives to hide Jews. And in this new narrative, the rescuer narrative, the specificity of the Holocaust, of course, could not be blurred. So we're not talking about erasing the Holocaust. The German occupiers in the story definitely wanted to hunt and kill the Jews. And the few survivors, though, owed their lives all to Poles. And Jews become this foil against which the Poles measure their own heroism, their own willing to sacrifice. There's sort of a background story, right? A background story, and they are passive victims, the Jews. The Poles are the active heroic heroes of the story. And it, of course, also, this narrative stresses the danger the Polish rescuers face and portray this danger as equal to that facing Jews. And as I said before, Gomuka himself explained to Israelis that the only ones saved from extermination were those Jews whom the Poles concealed at the risk of their own lives. And this Neskura narrative fits well uh, with the contemporaneous state ideology that stresses the Polish national way, stressed the Polish national way to socialism. And it aimed to push out of the party all Jewish elements in favor of patriotic Poles. Okay, so this new narrative comes against the background of the rise of uh, the faction in the party that wants a Polish communist that doesn't have any Jews in it. The interior minister, Mucheslav Mochar, there he is, oh, yes, uh, Mochar, and his partisan faction in the ruling party wanted the state and party cleanse of Jews. And they wanted Jewish history to disappear from the pages of Polish history. Right, Jews were just the foil. And many in, his, in, in his, the Machar circle, right, uh, also claimed um, the past of resistance, right? They also all claimed to have been resistance fighters, to have been part of the anti-Nazi 
uh, battle during the war. We don't, some of them were, but some of them only claimed this identity as resistance fighters. But it was central to uh, Polish, to communist Polish nationalism. Okay, and as the systematic murder of the Jews becomes a key issue in the history of World War II in general, right? As the world turns to sort of talk about the Holocaust in the 60s, in the late 50s, around the Eichmann trial, uh, these people begin to get upset. They had grown tired of seeing World War II commemorations taken over by Jews. They grew tired of seeing fictional and scholarly work at home and in the West amid the torment of Poles during the war. They worried that Zionist Jews worked purposely to erase Polish sacrifice from the pages of history. And once Gomuka said, right, in June 67, that the time has come to purge the Jews, that Jews were indeed disloyal, all of these people were just waiting around for their moment. And what were they most angry about? This, the memory of the war. Many of them were founders of members of the Society of Fighters for Freedom of Democ and Democracy, um, Zbovid, which was Poland's World War II veterans organization. Mochar was at one point its president. Okay, so their identity was interwoven into their, their identity as communists was interwoven into their identity as resistance fighters, as veterans. And they really wanted to make Polish suffering and heroism the one and only issue of national commemoration. As, as is happening today, so then Polish politicians pressed scholars and artists and intellectuals to become patriotic, to embrace a world of a, a view of the war in which Jews were just marginalized passive victims and Poles played a positive role as either victims or saviors. And this view, of course, persists. Right? This view that Poles either rescued Jews or remained indifferent persisted into the post-communist era. It retained a central position. And after decades of silencing certain aspects in the history of the German occupation, and despite the demands of the Union to come to terms with the past, some in Poland still reacted with suspicion to the sudden concern with the fate of Jews during the war. They were angry that after communism, right, uh, people in Poland, historians, scholars, started to talk about participation of Poles in the murder of Jews. They were not happy about this. They were also not happy with the central role, the central place that the Holocaust took in the European context of, of memory of the war. But how much the European Union also stressed the importance of the Holocaust to European history. Because Poland developed its own distinctive memory of victimhood and they had their rescuer narrative that left little room for Jewish suffering. It saved, it had no space for Polish collaboration and participation in the murder of Jews. 
And this perception of Paul as savior of Jews and heroes of wartime Europe also complemented the idea, the political myth that is still very important to Paul's of Christ among the nations. This is a central Polish uh, national ethos. We, we are constantly martyring ourselves for Europe, and we did that in World War II. And by stressing this Polish martyrdom during the war, both the communist and, as we see, post-communist political myths affirmed those, all these decades-long cultural perceptions of the role of Poland in history. And as we look to the situation in Eastern Europe today, because how can we not? We can see the importance and centrality of World War II narratives for the current violence. You know, once this was dismissed uh, um, by political scientists, by historians, it's just rhetoric. It's not worthy of serious attention. Why are you studying this? Now the war has, in Ukraine has actually put into focus the importance of understanding how discourses on the war shape contemporary politics in the region, and I would say in the so-called West in general. And we see that memory wars have now become genocidal war. And the Russian propaganda machine continuously engages in historical allegories. Right now, the Ukrainians are cast as Nazis, the Russians as liberators, repeating the historical role of the Soviet army as denazifier. And this narrative, I want to say, is not just a result of Russian history. It is also a reaction to the last decades. This European right-wing governments denied collaboration uh, with Nazis in the genocide of Jews, and at the same time have continuously compared the Nazi and Soviet occupations. The Soviets, uh, so the narrative goes, had done to them what the Nazis had done to the Jews. Right? The Museum of World War II in Dance ends in one of the final rooms with this, uh, these pictures. And this uh, memorial uh, uh, policy, right, of talking of comparison, really emerges from the same feelings that were expressed in 68, that East European suffering has, had not been acknowledged enough. Our story has not been told, and we are very frustrated. The Russians, on the other hand, completely escalated their own views on World War II. In January 2020, right, right before we all went into lockdown, Putin gave a speech at Yad Vashem, Israel's Central Holocaust Memorial, erasing the Soviet uh, alliance with Nazi Germany and portraying Ukrainians, Lithuanians, and others as collaborators. In 2021, Russia passed uh, memory laws about World War II as well. Those attach fines and prison sentences to, and I quote, any public attempt to equate the aims and actions of the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany during World War II, as well as to deny the decisive role of the Soviet people uh, in the victory over fascism. As, as, as Fran Hirsch has argued recently, right, we should understand these laws as setting the stage for the war in Ukraine. Your very own. <laughs> um, okay, so, so memory wars matter in the real world. And another element 
that we can take from the decades of national communism uh, that had played out uh, during this current crisis in Ukraine is the battle against local indifferent hybrid the current Ukrainian government, with all its difficulties and problems, and was certainly not a perfect government uh, before the war, though, it still represents the possibility of building Ukrainian identity based on belonging to the state and to the culture, not necessarily ethno-national identity. Ukrainians can be Russian speakers, can be Jews, can be Tatars. Their loyalties to the city, to their region, to their government. And we have seen this, that they have not, despite what Putin thought, many Russian speakers in Ukraine have not gone over right, to the Russian side. They are loyal to the Ukrainian state, to, to which they, they have a sense of belonging. And just as it happened in World War II, just as it happened in the 60s, these types of identity are, identities are constantly coming under fire. And now with Putin seeking to destroy, literally destroy, uh, genocidally destroy Ukraine. Now in 67, in a far, far less violent attack, right? It's not the same thing, of course. Um, Gomuka urged Jews uh, to choose a homeland. He too rejected the idea that Polish Jews could be just that, Poles and Jews, not one before the other, as I said at the beginning. For some, like the person I started with, Leon Svart, this led to immigration to Israel. For, and I quote, living in Sweden or America or somewhere like that would be like being a tourist for your entire life. Israel, though, made similar demands of Polish Jews to be one or the other. Though it highly desired the arrival of these new immigrants, they received a rather cold welcome uh, in Israel. Many, some wondered why they stayed in Poland for so many years after the Holocaust, why they failed to shift their loyalties to Zionism earlier. Um, and this led for, right, for several 1968 immigrants to leave, right, including Yanina and Zygmunt Bauman, Michael's Grandparents left Israel, along with, with some other immigrants from Poland. His parents, uh, Leon and Anasfard, stayed. His paternal grandparents stayed. So did my family. And my parents did build their life, lives in Israel. And they did strive to become part of Israeli society. And my father, who was a Polish-speaking refugee, became a prominent journalist. My mother worked for the civil service. But even in our family, the past split, and my uncle, Wadek uh, Godkorn, couldn't accept this um, identity, and he went on his own path, immigrating to Italy, where he too became a journalist and award-winning writer. Tragically, though, Janina Bauman could not belong anywhere, really. And I want to talk a little bit about her in the end. In, in her words, and I cite, I left that country, Poland, in the distant past, abandoning all my young hopes and passion. Now I belong nowhere. 
But perhaps to belong means to love and be loved. And this is all that truly matters. After the fall of communism, where it became possible to go back to Poland, Janina Bauman still felt she could not live in Poland. She feared that history would repeat itself. And she chose to continue her life of not belonging in England. And I want to end with this quotation. That's why I can't return, because I would have nowhere to run if I ever heard that I was a stranger, that I was unwanted in my native country. And that is something I wouldn't be able to live with from day to day. Thank you. <laughs>